0: Between our first and our last breath, our life is a series of seasons. Every high and low is a season that shapes us.
1: We arrived home to get a phone call from a very dear friend. She called to let me be the first one to know that her 15-year-old son had just committed suicide. All I know is that very moment, I felt like all the air in my lungs had suddenly been taken from me and a crushing weight had been placed upon my chest that was too heavy to lift. Great sobs entrenched my body, and she and I just wept. I immediately felt God's overwhelming presence to pray and beg for words that I could not put together. I have walked through the aftermath of the suicide of my father years ago and could see a much younger me in my mind, standing beside this friend as she found her son just after the gun sounded. Sorrow will intensify and wane in the days and years to come, but through experience, I know it can be immediately brought back to the same intensity as the moment the tragedy hits. If there's ever a time to reach out to brothers and sisters in Christ, to uphold them, it's always now sorrow is numbing sorrow can make you angry sorrow is isolating sorrow is hard sorrow is weighty sorrow is crushing sorrow brings headaches and body aches sorrow tests your will for life but god there is joy from it all in the presence of god
0: Let's take a moment and just thank Anna and her family for sharing that story. (laughs) Talking about sorrow today. Um, I remember talking with a pastor, older pastor, who uh, had served at a big church for years. And he was sharing with me the experience, what it was like losing his own son. And he was talking about how, I mean, for years he had done dozens of young people's funeral services. And he was always trying to wrap his mind around what those people were going through. He would walk, he said, through uh, the halls of the high school where the kid had gone, and there was just silence. And he would sit in the homes of the families, and it was just so subdued. And he's trying to enter into what they're going through. They said, when I would get done with these services and it'd be late, I'd just crawl into bed with my son, and I would play with his hair, smell him, and, and just hold him close. uh, His son would say to him, hey, Dad, did you do a funeral or something? So he could tell he was sad. And um, he said, I never truly understood what those families uh, were going through until that little boy was taken from me. Because it's way different when it comes to your house. He said, the whole world sort of moves on at some point from your tragedy, but you can't you can't move on. And it's this sorrow uh, that I want to address today. C.S. Lewis, who's an intellectual who became a Christian later on, um, he describes in his grief observed uh, the death of his wife and the emotional kind of roller coaster he was on through that season. And he said, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Sorrow has this kind of constant effect on us you just can't get out of under it and you're just constantly reminded of it and obviously we're dealing with uh, multiple deaths here but the truth is there are many things that can uh, bring about a season of sorrow for us and maybe for you it's not it's not death it's betrayal maybe it's that you've gone through a divorce or someone you love has maybe it's uh, a health crisis Maybe it's relationships that should not be torn apart but are being torn apart. Maybe it's a kid that has gone astray from your family. What do we do with our seasons of sorrow? Because sorrow comes, but what do we as Christians or those of you who are exploring Christianity, what do we actually do with it? Because you have to do something. And perhaps the first option is we just, you know, uh, embrace the kind of religious mindset well, eventually as the world moves on, we just move on too. And we sort of pretend that everything's okay and say, you know, whatever religious thing we think we should say that, you know, God has a plan and and I'm okay. Or on the other hand, do we say, you know what, this is hard. And we just sort of allow ourselves to wither into despair. I think that we should do neither of these things and instead, we should look to Jesus. We should look to Jesus. And so that is what we're going to do today. We are gonna look at a story in the life and the gospel of Jesus where he faces sorrow as the God man and what that actually looks like. This is a story in John chapter 11. Uh, So if you have a Bible, please open up to John chapter 11 to the right in your Bibles. But if you uh, don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, new to Christianity, we will have the verses on the screen and you can take one of those Bibles on the seats home with you, that's our gift to you. And here's kind of the story if we can kind of catch up to it. Uh, This is a story about Jesus hearing about his friend Lazarus getting sick and then ultimately dying. And he is good friends with not only the man Lazarus, but his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And there are mourners there uh, who are probably uh, not as close to the situation, but Jesus enters in. And I want you to zoom in on this. Uh, But as we do, uh, I want to begin with a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? God of all comfort, Only you know the real contours of the pain of each person in this room. Only you were there. You alone are the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And only you have explored the darkness of the grave. May your life-giving Holy Spirit right now fill this place. Father, may your presence be felt and known among the hurting. I want to specifically lift up the Yarnell family, just as they are going through it right now. May your nearness and care pierce our hearts. Would you cause the strange beauty of the cross to unleash healing in this place? And may your resurrection hope be an anchor for our souls. In Jesus' gentle name I pray, amen. We're going to look at four things that we see in the story concerning our sorrow, and here is the first one. Number one, God is often closest when our days are darkest. God is often closest when our days are darkest. Look at verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb for days. Now, um, I want you to notice what I've highlighted here, uh, particularly that this has been four days since Lazarus died. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, the Bible does not waste details. Things are written here for a good reason, they—they they are not—they are not like wasting this. But this is significant. That it is four days after Lazarus' death, and you know why? Uh, because in the first century, there was this Jewish superstition among them. This actually wasn't a biblical idea, but among the first-century Jews, there was sort of like a popular-level idea that your spirit lingered around the body for three days after you died. And at the end of those three days, there was essentially no hope of resuscitation. Again, not biblical, uh, but this is what the popular level believed. And this text is being very intentional. saying, Actually, on the fourth day, Jesus shows up. And so what we're hearing here is that this is a hopeless scene. And I might even ask you, like, when was your most hopeless day? When did you face trial? When did you face sorrow? Can you remember that? Uh, For some of us, we're like, man, I haven't really dealt with these extreme forms of sorrow and and you feel like you can't enter into this. Like, no, all of that matters. So when was it for you? In fact, uh, for Lindsay and I, I'll say uh, I was living in Sacramento, California, and um, we were there to help a church plant kind of be revitalized and to grow and all this stuff. And uh, I I had gotten this job down there and we moved from Portland and I lost the job. And after losing the job, I also had my car break down and didn't have any money to, like, fix my car. And so uh, we, like, pick up a side hustle of, like, uh, cleaning up the church we were serving at. And this church rented itself out to all these different churches, like, every church in the city, basically. And so the only time we could come in and clean was, like, 12 p.m. And this was the dead of winter in Sacramento, California, which you're like, okay, well, it's sunny. No, it's high desert, and so it was like frosty. And so we are literally like on these bikes, like, like at 12 p.m. You can picture this, like Lindsay and I, because I'm such a loser, and we are driving to, we are not even driving, we are riding bikes, you guys, in the cold to like with my wife, like all the way to like go scrub some toilets. This was a low point in the Jaden family, okay? And so I'm just like, this is who I am, and this is a low point. When was your low point? When was that for you? When was your saddest season? Here's what I need you to see. Not only was this this most hopeless moment in their lives, but in this most hopeless moment, Jesus shows up. He enters in. Look at the beginning of that. What does it say? Now when Jesus came. You know that Jesus wants to show up in your darkest hour? That's who he is. Um, I, I remember I was in my first year of college, and I was in my dorm room, and I get a text on my, like, flip phone, because that's how old I am. And I was like, you know, and I'm, like, looking at this text, and it turns out that my, uh, my friend from high school's sister, who we knew well, had actually uh, died tragically in a car accident. And I'm looking at this, like, holy moly, like, what do I even say? Like, do I text him? We haven't connected in a long time. Like, am I even allowed to message this guy? And, and to be perfectly honest, I never reached out to him. I just like, backed away slowly and didn't know what to say, so I said nothing. And the truth is, when we are in our hardest seasons, isn't it so common that people are like, don't know how to approach us, and so they just sorta of don't? And it can exaggerate the loneliness. Well, here is the good news, that Jesus is nothing like me. He doesn't cower away from our darkest moments, but in the seasons of sadness, Jesus brings his gentle presence. He doesn't come in guns blazing with all of this advice, nor does he back away from us slowly. Jesus enters in. It says, now when Jesus came, he comes in this most hopeless hour. Psalm 34, 18 tells us this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus experiences it with you. Um, We'll notice in the details of this text that actually Jesus doesn't come in Primarily as the teacher. And he is a teacher. He is the great rabbi. He is God in the flesh. He has come to teach us some things. But in this hour, he doesn't come primarily as a teacher. In fact, it's his uh, detractors that actually call him the teacher. But what he comes as in this setting is not the teacher, but the co-sufferer. In fact, if you'll notice in verse 35, Jesus is talking to Mary. um, And she's a little more tender as we'll see. But he, it says there, in the, perhaps the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. Like, what do you think of when you think of God? Big, strong, sovereign, omnipotent, ruler over the universe. Indeed he is. But he descends, and he enters our sorrow. He becomes vulnerable. He becomes weak. And he weeps with you in your hardest moments you can actually do an entire study on the emotional life of Jesus. You ever think about this? Um, Again, we think of Jesus as this enormous, omnipotent God. What were his emotions like? And Even think about this as just a man. Like, how do we define masculinity? Isn't it so often like you're supposed to be the anchor? You're supposed to be strong. You're supposed to have extreme ownership and just like be a dude and grind through it. What does like emotional health actually look like as a Christian, a Christian man or a Christian woman? Might I suggest we look at the life of Jesus? And he was an extremely emotional man. Um, Actually, B.B. Warfield, he's this old preacher, old dead preacher, and I do recommend reading old dead preachers and theologians. B.B. Warfield, he actually did this scholarly article on, and it's called this, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And he studies this. And in the very beginning article, he asked the question like, what is the maybe primary emotion you see Jesus exhibiting? Now he he exhibited the full spectrum of emotion, like anger. He shows up and he is driving people out of the temple who are abusing people. He has anger. But what was the primary one? He has anger. Maybe is it overwhelm? Is it overwhelm that he experiences leading up to the cross and his whole life is driven toward the cross so it's overwhelm? What, if you encountered Jesus and you watched his life, would you say was the primary emotion that he exhibited? You're exactly right. The primary emotion, B.B. Warfield says, compassion. Compassion is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to him. And I love this. If you're new to Christianity, you don't know the person and the work of Jesus. Let me just tell you this. Jesus, at one point, is looking out the sea of people who do not yet know him. And you think, like, what does God think of me? I don't know God. Like, what is he thinking about me? I've even had people tell me who are new to Christianity. Literally, last week, dude's coming in. He's like, I'm surprised lightning isn't striking me down. Like, I don't do all this. And I'm coming in, and I'm sort of afraid. Like, is that the posture of God towards us? He's going to strike you down with lightning. What's fascinating is Jesus looks out at the sea of people who don't know him. And you know what he says? He says, man, they are like sheep without a shepherd. And he longs that they would be brought into his fold. They need care. And, man, I want to move towards them. This is the compassion of Jesus. And B.B. Warfield argues that at the bottom of compassion is love. That Jesus is a God of love and he wants to move towards you. I love this because you think about Jesus and who he was. He was the healer, right? Right? And so from town to town, he is healing people. And there's this tension in all of the Gospels around the question of like, what does it take for the God-man to heal? And there's times when they acknowledge, like, wait a second, you have so much authority that you do not need to come under my roof in order to heal my servant. Just say the word, Lord. And we know that your authority is such that they will be healed from afar, which is true because he is indeed the God-man. But it's so interesting because as you study all of these healing accounts, It's not that Jesus just has authority that's pushed. It's that he is eager to come into their space, to get near and to heal. We see him and he comes into the life of a little girl who had died. And what does it say? It says that he goes into her house and he sits down and makes a point to sit down next to her little dead body. And I love the way the children's story Bible actually describes the sense of the passage that he reaches down and gently lifts her out of death, and in our Bibles it says, he says, little girl, arise. This is how Jesus heals. He is eager to come near, and you know why that is? Because even more important than the healing of Jesus is his nearness. That is what these guys are getting at. And so Jesus draws near, and he draws near with compassion. Um, I recently uh, had to go get a haircut. There's not much up there, but um, I still go. My wife is like opposed to me shaving it, which I'm like, it would look so cool. So I go to get this haircut, and um, I was actually preparing to teach on Friday about uh, uh, evangelism, about mission, about basically reaching people who don't yet know the compassion, the beauty of of Jesus. And so I have to preach on, um, I'm talking about this, like I have to preach on it, right? (laughs) Like I had to preach on evangelism. I get to preach on evangelism. But the young adults, and so I, I show up at this haircut place, I'm thinking about this in the back of my mind, and I'm like, man, I should be evangelizing myself. Like, as I go in there, I'm praying, Lord, Lord, like, will you use me? Will you allow me to step into this person's life and hopefully, you know, introduce them to Jesus? And so I'm asking, Lord, how am I gonna be alive, all this stuff, and I, and I sit in the, the salon chair there, and I remember she's just like, uh, it's the same lady that I, I, I usually have cut my hair. And so I'm just asking her, how are things going? And it dawns on me, that nobody asks her how things are going. And so I just, I'm, I'm talking to her, and she sort of gets into it, and she literally is like talking and talking. Like, she's not even cutting my hair at this point, and she's like, why am I not even cutting your hair, and we're going into it? And she starts describing to me ha- how she's dealing with sadness. She, she's dealing with a broken mama's heart, because uh, when he was 13, her, her little boy, it was the first time that he was just as tall as her, and she remembers looking at him and going, You're, you need to stop doing that. He's like, stop doing what? She's like, you're just growing up so fast. And literally, we had these last two years that were just stolen from us. And so he goes from being a sophomore to now, like, she blinks, and it's like, dude, he's moving out. He's going on to do the next thing. And she's like in tears, like, I don't know why I'm sharing all this with you. And I'm like, I don't know either. Like, are we wasting time here? But like, I want to get in her heart. Here's what I believe. That is not a waste of time. Because I am convinced, like, what would Jesus do if he was going to the barber shop? Like, probably not get his hair cut because, like, he had long, I don't know. Did he? That's what the pictures always look like. But, like, I am convinced that Jesus would not have sat in that chair and thought, like, how are you going to be a means to the end of me getting a haircut? I believe that Jesus would have sat and come up to every single person he encountered and say, how am I going to be a means to the end of your healing? That's who Jesus is is. So number one, Jesus is closest when our days are darkest. Uh, But for some of us, um, you're not looking for this kind of encounter with Jesus. Some of us, that's just not you. Um, And there are different kinds of personalities, because honestly, some of you, and I am like this, uh, you're like, yeah, I'm dealing with this tragedy, but I actually have a bone to pick with God. Like, I have some serious questions about faith like i want to know answers because maybe you're more intellectually academically wired or whatever and the truth is this number two jesus can handle your most crushing questions look at the text again verse 20. i want you to notice the names that are presented here so when martha heard that jesus was coming she went and met him but mary remained seated in the house martha said to jesus lord if you had been here my brother would not have died. Now, this is interesting. In this story, um, you have Mary, and she shows up, and you have Martha and their sisters, and they are dealing with the same thing, and they, ask him, they actually present to him the same problem. Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And what's fascinating in the text is he deals with both of them differently, doesn't he? Uh, and so here, Martha is coming up, and I want you to get the sense of who these girls are. All right, so who is Mary. Mary is the more contemplative personality, right? She's the artsy one, the poetic one, the thinker. And we find her in other places in the gospel. She's sitting at Jesus's feet and she's there to absorb. She is the personality that's like up in the morning, 5 a.m., just like, like genuflecting, going in deep in the devotionals, all right? Like she's the one who's like the genuflector. And Martha, what's she doing? She's, she's like working, bro. She's like, we got things to do, Mary. Jesus is here, long travels. Like, we're trying to help him. Like, get to work with me, Jesus. Tell her to help me out. You guys, you guys know this story? If so, those of you who are new to the bar, Bible, um, Mary is the contemplative one, but Martha is the aggressive sister, okay? And so, like, just for fun, w- which one of you guys like the Mary personality, right? You're like, I'm the thinker, I'm the, uh, I'm the contemplative. Okay, so it's just you and me. It's just you and me. And uh, how many of you guys are the Marthas, Okay, many, many more of you. Uh, So you're the doers in here. How many of you guys don't care what I'm asking? You're like, I'm not raising my hand. Like, no way. No way. Okay, yeah, very good. And so here's the reality. And by the way, because we are Rise, that's why there's so many Marthas here. Because we're like, we're going to take over the city. And it just like attracts a certain kind of person, I guess. And so we got Mary, we got Martha. I'll I'll just show you in my family how this plays out. Uh, These are my sons. (laughs) And uh, the older one is named Ollie. And he is our bash brother, okay, as he is obviously, like, just intentionally, like, crushing my other son. And this is, if you're wondering what is it like to raise boys, wonder no more. Like, this is it. Like, I promise I'm a good dad, and I actually split them up after taking this picture. (laughs) I was like, i got to take this. Actually, zoom in on the younger brother here. Look at that. (laughs) so sad. Oh, man. Pray for my household. I don't even know what we're preaching at about at this point. (laughs) Like, what is going on? I'm so far off. This is also what it was like to grow up with my older brother. And so Martha is tough, amen? Like, she's like, and so she goes after Jesus. And it doesn't say it in the text, but you just get the sense as you learn these characters, uh, these historical figures. Like like Mary, when she goes up and says this same phrase to Jesus, I picture it like this. Like, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have. You know, you just picture her saying it like that. It's just speculation. But Martha, I picture like, I got a bone to pick with Jesus. Right? Like, Jesus, here's my hardest question. Like, why? That's Martha, right? And you almost wonder, like, is she allowed to talk to Jesus like this? Like, are we allowed to bring these kinds of doubts to King Jesus? I would argue yes. Because he goes there with her, doesn't he? he converses, he dialogues with both sisters in a different way. And so what are your most crushing questions? Have you brought them here to church? Man, things like this, like when I go through tragedy, if you're so sovereign, God, that there are no maverick molecules and you have charge over every atom of this universe, why wouldn't you stop this? Or God, if you're so good, Jesus, why would this be in your plan? have these questions and hear me on this it is necessary to grapple with these doubts man this is natural that we have these doubts um john foreman who is a uh, christian musician he played in a band called switchfoot which if you grew up christian and you weren't allowed to listen to rock but you liked rock you listened to switchfoot (laughs) and so uh john foreman recently wrote this song um and it's just fascinating this is a christian guy and he says this Jesus, I'm sorry about last night. Jesus, we both know I tried. Jesus, feels like the world's in pieces. I'm sure you've got your reasons, but I've got my doubts. Jesus, I've got my doubts. When everything that's right feels wrong, and all my belief feels gone, and the darkness in my heart is so strong, can you reach me here in the silence? Do you know that Jesus welcomes your crushing questions? Like He wants to engage with you. Hear me on this. There is a difference between doubt and denial. Because what denial is, is it is rejecting God. But what doubt is, is it is natural because it is a wrestling with God. And there is a world of difference. The difference is instead of rejecting God because of these questions, you actually dive in and wrestle with him. Man, I want to, like, these are real questions, Jesus, but I actually want to wrestle with you. And we see denial in this passage, and they're actually, uh, I believe John is actually presenting something of a contrast. In verse 37, we have these uh, mourners who oftentimes weren't even close to the situation. It's just tradition that they would come mourn. And so they doubt Jesus, And, and Jesus deals with them totally different. But it says here in 37, but some of them said... Could not he who have opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? And they're rejecting Jesus. Like, who is this rabbi? Like, he couldn't have stopped this. If he could have stopped this, wouldn't he have stopped this? And so here's my question. If there is a difference between doubt and denial, what do you do with your doubt? Like, what are you doing with that? Is it just something you feel like, man, I need to stuff this down? I'm going to be really honest right now. And for some of you, you're going to be like, well, this makes you like... uh, not a worthy pastor or something, Um, because this is my limp. I have always wrestled with an inner atheist, right? I'm I'm the kid that grew up just like doubting, like people tell me about Jesus, like whatever, like the fairy God, invisible, like what are you talking about Jesus? And so for me, it was just like evolution makes sense. We've come from nothing. We're going nowhere. It sucks in the middle. Like this is my disposition. And so then I get saved by Jesus and and Jesus brings me in with all my doubt. Like, I I genuinely believe in Christ, genuinely get saved, but, like, I'm just wired a certain way, and so I've always asked questions. There have been seasons of my life where I've fallen away from Christ as a young man because I'm, like, wrestling with these intellectual questions, and sometimes you enter church and people are like, man, you're just supposed to believe. Like, have a little more faith. And I'm like, but are you going to deal with the questions, though? It's like, no, you're just supposed to believe. And here's what I'm convinced of. Some of you will say, you wrestle with an inner atheist, like, that makes you a horrible pastor. That makes you a horrible leader, and, and maybe that's fine. But the, but the truth is, and I am convinced of this, because I wrestle with an inner atheist, I think it has actually made me a better Christian. I think it has made me a better dad. I think it has made me um, tender to people who like also struggle. The truth is, here's, here's what the church doesn't need. The church doesn't need a bunch of religious people who just say, Ah, let's just have more faith. What the church needs is not people who hide their questions, but who hunt down the answers. Amen? The church, man, Listen, 2022, I know we're not there yet, but the world in 2022 does not need a church who just gives them religion. What 2022 needs is a church who actually wrestles with reality, who actually says, hey, you struggle with doubt? So do we we wrestle through these things. And here, let me introduce you to Jesus. Or man, I've hunted this down myself in this book. Can I give you that book? Can I walk through it with you? The, the world of 2022 needs to hear me on this. Thinking Christians who are willing to deal with this stuff. mean, I believe that we should be inoculating the youth, not like hiding them from what reality is, but saying, hey, here's a little bit of exposure, like a vaccine, so that when they're anti-Jesus college professor and all their intellectual like, doubts and, and discrepancies with Christianity and the desire to sin at college collide, they're ready for it. We're like educating them on this stuff and exposing them to these problems so that they have answers and a deep faith in Jesus. And so Jesus, I believe, man, he welcomes your most crushing questions and that's what he does here. But here's the, here's the kind of elephant in the room. Like I'm saying he has all these answers. Where are they? Like, we're offering none so far in your sorrow. Well, in these last two, I want you to see really specific answers in the text in your sorrow. Uh, So number three, and here's one of them, is sorrow has an expiration date. Sorrow has, if you're new to Christianity, welcome. Your sorrow, if you know Jesus, has an expiration date. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus, now underline this, circle this, mark it well in your Bibles. Then Jesus deeply moved. Very important there. Deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Um, What do you think he's talking about here when he says deeply moved? If you study um, kind of the different translations of this passage, um, the NASB, NET, NIV, NIV, you know, NKJV, like, they all translate it somewhat differently, right? So they approach it with really They're like, oh, okay, so the Bible has, like, mistranslations left and right, and so we throw out our Bible. Is that why that is? Well, no, we're trying to translate best we can from Greek to English, and there's varying connotations in one word, just like in English. And so we're trying to get it right. And so this is a good translation, deeply moved, but it actually has the connotation, like, what emotion is this? It has the connotation of anger. It's actually the sound that a, uh, it's related to the sound a horse makes when it like kind of like snarls, just, you know, just making horse noises today. (laughs) Just like whatever sound horses make when they're upset, that's the sound that relates to this, okay? And so there's one sense that Jesus is walking up to the tomb and right now he is engaging death itself, and he comes up and it says that he groans in some translations. He's deeply moved. He's angry, he snarls at death. He's making noises is the implication. And so I just find this fascinating because some, I've actually heard preachers take this and learn this and be like, oh, actually, he must be mad at the doubters. Like, he's, who is he angry at? He must be mad at the doubters. And I don't think that's accurate. Like, that just can't be it because you read the passage and it's not there. So who is he mad at, class? Who's Jesus mad at? Jesus is angry at death. And I find this incredibly interesting because, again, I grew up, I'm going to secular, you know, public school and all this. If you grew up in homeschool or, like, you know, you grew up in private school knowing Christianity, like, this is not me, right? I'm growing up, I'm learning all these things, and I have these deep questions of life just like you do. And I remember, like, being in health class, and they would give you uh, this section on grief. You remember this, anybody? No, because you guys were the ones sleeping. And I was the nerd, like, awake, like, tuned in to, like, oh, grief, I have this question. And so in health class, they go through this, and it's a little cheesy 80s video that I'm watching. And you know what they teach you about your grief? You know what they teach you about death in a secular framework? It's just this. Hey, just get used to it. Just sort of welcome it. Just, just kind of calm down. Like, it's only natural. It's normal. And kind of like a sick matchmaker, the secular worldview says, you should just welcome death because like a hakuna matata, right? And like, it's just okay, it's part of the circle of life, like it's normal. And so don't avoid death, just acknowledge that death is normal. And here's what Jesus doesn't do. He does not accept death. He looks at death and he's angry. He looks at this most sorrowful moment, he says, it is wrong, It is not natural. And something in your soul knows that death is wrong. It's not natural. Why can't you just get along with the program? Well, here's why. Because this is not natural. Death is not to be accepted. It is not normal. And your soul knows that. And here's what's beautiful about Jesus. He comes in and says, you know that thing your soul continues to tell you while the world lies to you? It's true. And I am come angry at death. And I love this. He is He is not pleased. He is coming up to the tomb. You can just imagine it. He's just like, he's upset. And I think the best commentator on this is John Calvin. Years and years ago, he says this on this passage. Christ does not come to the sepulcher, to the tomb, as an idle spectator, but like a wrestler preparing for contest. Therefore, no wonder that he groans again for the violent tyranny of death which he had to overcome now stands before his eyes. I don't know if you're like me, but I like follow like ESPN and stuff on Instagram, and so my feed might look different than yours or whatever. But like uh, things that come up in my feed are like UFC fights. You know, I know you guys are all good Christians and don't watch UFC, but uh, like, and what happens is they kind of face off before the match, right? And there's this whole thing. And you you, you ever seen that moment, anybody? No? Okay, cool. And so what happens is they don't show up, and they're like, bro, what's going on, my man? Like, how's your wife? Like, how's the kids? Okay, cool, cool. We're about to get this on. Like, I'll see you there. Is that how they come up? No, they come up, and they're like, what's up, bro? Like, they're bowing up. They're preparing for contest. They're ready to go to war. They want to win. And that's how Jesus shows up. He shows up like a great UFC fighter, before the tomb, I love this. I saw a meme that actually depicts this this week. I, I, it's too good to pass up. And so here's this meme. And uh, you see Jesus here, and he's got a whip. And he's like, man, I came here to do two things, to heal the lepers and to purge, the, eat, purge evil from the world. And I'm all out of lepers. <laughs> Come on, somebody. Jesus is like, I'm not having this. He walks up to the tomb. And what does he do? Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. Now, just imagine being within earshot of this Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. I love this. This is so powerful and this is so beautiful because secularism, you know what it says? Secularism says death is our natural end. But the Bible says that Jesus is the end of death. And so he comes to the tomb ready for battle. And what he does is he brings forth his dead friend Lazarus. And this is kind of fascinating because you have to think like Jesus himself hasn't risen from the dead yet. And so like poor Lazarus, like he gets raised from the dead. And, like, we know he's going to die again, right? <laughs> like, and so um, this is a type of what is to come, and Jesus is flexing here, that I am the God of resurrection. I'll do one even before I get resurrected. But we know he's going to die again. In fact, uh, later on in the passage it says that the, the religious people who are angry about this and don't believe in Jesus, they want to kill him. And so he's still vulnerable to this. This isn't the final resurrection. But how does Jesus ultimately promise our final resurrection? Because the hope is that we will all be resurrected one day. You know how he does it? Jesus absorbs our sin in death himself. This passage is days before the cross. And it is at the cross where he, in our place for our sins, enters into death. That he might defeat death for all of us. So that we might live in him in eternity at the resurrection as well. This is the good news of Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, this is what the promise of Scripture is to you, that Jesus already entered into death for you. So your death will not be ultimate in him. That's the truth. I want you to get a sense for what this was like when he enters into death on the cross for us. Um, how many of you guys, you're into Star Wars. Star Wars, okay, fanatics, cool, what's up? Uh, See so you at, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the nerd you know, conferences and all that. So Star Wars fanatics, what are the best three Star Wars The first three, which are what? Four, five, and six. Okay, last service, somebody was like, you know, uh, five, six, and seven. And I was like, yeah. And everyone's like laughing at me. Like, what an idiot. I was like, it's his fault. But it's four, five, and six. And what's the best of the four, five, and six? No, who said six? It's a new hope, the first one, right? It's the best one, because here's why. Because at the end, they cannot defeat the empire. And the only way for the rebel forces to defeat the Empire is what? They actually have to descend into the Death Star. And so the scene is epic, and you have Luke Skywalker in the X-Wing starfighters, and they're coming down, and it's like he's the only one that's truly going to make it. But it's the most dangerous possible place for them to be. Why? Because there's all these TIE fighters. They're, like, ready to go. They're shooting R2-D2, and they're, like, coming in, and it's Darth Vader himself and all the irony there of him going after Luke Skywalker. And so the TIE fighters are there and getting in a circle, and you're like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And in order to defeat the Death Star, he has to fire and get right into the heart of the Death Star itself. And then it goes... And you're like, oh my gosh, they defeat the Death Star. Is he going to survive? And Luke Skywalker's like... And he survives the entire thing, Right? We're doing Star Wars illustrations every week. He has to enter into the very heart of the Death Star in order to defeat it. But unlike Luke Skywalker, Jesus enters into the heart of death itself and does not survive it. He's swallowed up by it. And from the inside of the contours of death, Jesus defeats it from the inside out. That's what our Lord did. He swallowed up in our death, in our place, out of his great love for you that none of us deserve. And so we have a future hope that if we believe in him, death is not the final answer, it's Jesus. And this is good news, amen, (laughs) amen. But some of you are like me and you're still skeptical. You're like, okay, that's great news. And maybe you even believe that. But you're like, man, what about today? I'm still in this sorrow now. I believe in this future hope. But what about today? And, and to be honest, like as a person, I'm constantly discipling and spending time with young adults and, and youth and they have this question. They think of Christianity, many non-Christians, and I remember thinking this too, that Christianity is this religion for people that are like 118 years old because you're like, okay, so there's hope after death? Great. I got lots of sin and to do between now and then before I need that grace, right? Like, so let's just party it up. What hope is there today? And what hope is there today for your sorrow? Well, here's... The final one here, that yes, death has an expiration date, and that is good news, but also resurrection is a person. Look at verse 25. Here's what I mean. But even now, this is Mary, or sorry, Martha still dealing with Jesus. But even now, I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She's looking for a current hope, a present hope. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, no, 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 I am the resurrection and the life. This is what's beautiful. Some of us think of salvation. Some of us think of Christianity as like, well, we get some stuff, right? It's just salvation. It's a hope for when you die. It's a hope for later. It's got some good morals. And so Christianity is all about what God can give you. But here is the good news of Christianity. Christianity is not primarily about a what, but a who. It's not a hope just for later, but it is a person who you can encounter today. Man, do you know that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus? That is ultimately our hope, is that resurrection has a name, and his name is Jesus, and he wants to know you, and he wants you to walk with him. And he wants you to be present with him. And he wants to enter your life. It's not just about later and all this stuff. And all that stuff is good. Well, the renewed earth is beautiful. But most beautiful in Christianity is that we get Jesus, the person. It's not about a what, but a who. <laughs> um, recently, I was leaving my house this week. Just, and uh, something happened that has not never happened before. And if you know my wife, she's like not Mrs. Weirdo. Like she's super normal and chill. And she's, I'm the weirdo. And she steps out of her house, or my house. We live together. Let to go. Let's close in prayer. Oh. She steps out and she starts doing this. And I'm like, whoa, sick dance moves. Like what's going on? And so I realized something serious. And so I pull in, like, I can't leave yet. She's like, you can't leave. And I'm like, what is going on? And I'm thinking somebody's choking. I'm like ready for CPR. And uh, she looks at me and she says, and she brings my little four-year-old Remy out. And he's standing there and there's tears in his eyes uh, because I had hugged the other two kids, but I didn't hug him before I left. I'm like, I'm the worst dad ever. (laughs) A monster, just damaging them. And literally, he's so sensitive. He's just like, <laughs> he's all sad. And I'm like, buddy, it's where I run over. And I pick him up. I'm like, buddy, buddy. You know, and I'm like shaking him and I'm holding him. And he just lights up, you know. And he's just warm. He's like, I love you, daddy. Bye-bye. I'm like, see you later, bud. And my wife's like, good, do the right thing next time. <laughs> you know why that's so important, you guys? Because life is not about what you can get because life is not about stuff life the most sweet and beautiful part of life is people its relationships and you know that you are made for relationships and listen to me that most precious relationship is with King Jesus and he knows that he knows that's how you were made and he wants to have a relationship with you it's him it's him It's Him. as we pray I'm gonna offer some response I'm not going to make you stand up or walk to the back. I just want to pray for you, if that's okay. And I'm going to offer specific prayer for specific people. And when we're done, no matter what you need prayer for, we have the prayer room in the back. The, the response room will have, I think it's Sherry. she's she walking over there right now? And if I could get per- Sherry to pray for me, like I'm running over. You guys, be prayed for. And let me pray for you. We have communion as well to encounter the hope of Jesus. Will you bow your heads? If you are here and uh, you're saying I've been searching for, God," I literally came in here searching for God, not sure if he's even there, but today in hearing about Jesus, I'm not sure all this means, but I think I found him. If that's you, all I want to do is pray for you, this is between you and God, and I just want to pray for you. Would you actually slip up a hand right now? so I can pray. Cool, awesome, I see ya. Awesome. Anyone else? your hands up so I can pray for you. Awesome, thank you guys. If for you this means like, I wanna start becoming a Christian today, can I just ask you to go back to that response room at some point today? Come talk to me, come talk to Jason, one of the leaders. We would love to talk to you about what it means to follow Jesus. Father God, I wanna pray for these hearts right now are receiving you by faith. For some, that's just receiving you again. Um, For others, that's literally a heart change happening right now to go from darkness to light, to go from brokenness to wholeness, to go from alone to known. And for those folks, I just pray um, that are receiving Jesus by faith right now, that they would understand what it means as they take steps of faith, as they talk to somebody, as they as they begin their journey with Jesus. And I just pray that you would keep them, Lord, and that they would feel your presence even right now. And the second group I want to pray for is uh, those of you who are saying, sorrow is my current season. Maybe it's not this huge loss. Maybe it is. But if that's you, can I just take a moment and pray for you? Would you actually slip up a hand? Cool. Let me go to pray for you. Father, I thank you that you are a father to the fatherless. I thank you that you are the God, the God-man, who came down to become vulnerable with us, who slips his hand into death and gently lifts us out. God, I pray for those who are dealing with sorrow of all shapes and kinds, those dealing with depression, those dealing with shame, those dealing with sorrow and grief, I pray that you would bring healing in this place by the power of your spirit. That even when they walk through the shadow, the valley of death, they would fear no evil because you are with them, Lord. I pray that even if they can't get out of it right now, that as they stay in it, you would be in it with them. You who knows the tomb itself and who experienced the grave, would you actually bring resurrection into their life now because you are the resurrection and the life. Jesus, I pray that all of us as we worship, would encounter you. In your good name we pray.